The biggest difference, I guess, is in a parliamentary system, if things are not working out well, you have a vote of no confidence or the PM can call for elections. And in the U.S., they are stuck with each other until the 8th of November. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by one of the smartest two professors I know. Actually, both of the smartest two. My co-host, Chris Sands uh, of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. How are you doing? Doing well. It's good to see you. And, and it's great to be in person in Washington, D.C., in the Canusa Street studio here at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. With, so thank you for hosting. I, I'm delighted, but I understand that we're here with the other smartest professor you know. That's exactly right. <laughs> professor Sue Lagan, who is a constitutional scholar with Georgetown. I know you're going to introduce her. Sure. Sue and I have had a lot of fun um, with international visitors, in particular, some friends from Canada, uh, where we talk about the differences between constitutional democracy and parliamentary democracy. It's one of her uh, fields of expertise. And we thought it was particularly relevant with the passing of the queen. People are thinking about um, the monarchy. People are thinking about governments that still have the queen and now the king uh, as their head uh, of state. So anyway, we thought it was a good idea to invite our friend Sue and with that, Chris, let me ask you to introduce her properly to our guests. I'm delighted. Um, Dr. Susan Sullivan-Lagan uh, is a non-resident senior fellow with Georgetown's Government Affairs Institute, a position that she took in 2015 after 21 years as a senior fellow at the Institute. Um, before coming to GAI, Georgetown's Government Affairs Institute, all these acronyms in Washington, she taught American politics and constitutional law in the Depart government department at Georgetown, and she continues to teach constitutional law there as an adjunct. Her prior experience includes a stint as a book editor at Congressional Quarterly, uh, very relevant here, and she's a frequent speaker on CQ's Understanding Congress seminars. Uh, she's spoken to numerous that's groups. That's a feat, by the way, Understanding Congress. That's a, that's <laughs> uh, that's a that is true. It's amazing they've got so many episodes. Um, uh, she, she has spoken to numerous groups, including the Fulbright Scholars Program, the World Bank, various uh, embassies. It's a very smart group of people. And I know you grew up inside the Beltway, so you're actually, you're actually local, too. It's true. No wonder uh, you're captivated by American government or captured by it, because uh, it's everywhere here. Um, did you, I didn't know you grew up inside. I don't. Well, I forgot that maybe. But did I you? Did. did you when you were in high school, like I did, sneak away and go into Congress and sit in the gallery to watch the debates? Because I was nerdy enough to do that. You know, I Ooh. wish I could say uh, I did that, but I didn't. We moved here when I was six. My family's originally from the West Coast. Uh, from Oregon, and my dad was military, and we moved here for what we thought would be two years, and I never left, but um, now I sort of fell into paying attention to Congress backwards. In fact, if anything, I avoided um, politics just because when you go to school with, you know, half the kids whose parents are on the Hill, you get a pretty heavy dose. So I only got that nerdy that I started hanging out in the galleries when I was in college. Okay, a little bit later. And what started your, I don't know if I could say love affair with the Constitution, but why did you, why do you think you focused on Constitution for so many years? And then we'll get into some of the differences, but I'm just curious about that because we, you know. Sure, I wish I had a good um, 
answer that was, you know, something I was passionate about from my youth. But in fact, it wasn't. Um, I, when I went to college, I had considered studying architecture. And then I realized that you had to understand things like physics. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked to a friend who said, you should take courses in the government department in college. And I said, you know, I grew up in Washington. I'm really not a political person. And I was directed to take a couple classes, and one was with a, a sort of legendary professor of constitutional law at the University of Virginia. His name's Henry Abraham, and he just passed away in his mid-90s last wow. year. Wow, yeah. yeah. Um, but this was a soul saved. I mean, he and I got to be pals, and when and all UVA my friends went no to law joke. school, yeah. he said, Basically. you should teach. Uh, and I said, okay, because I had assumed, like everybody else in the government department, that I had applied to law school. And he said, stick around and go the academic route. So that's what I did. That's great. Yeah. That's cool. Um, you know, lately, I have to say, when you're joking about Congress, um, I I'm kind of glad that I'm not teaching about the U.S. Constitution um, this past year um, because... I've gotten emails from former students saying, how, how, how is this happening? Um, yeah. And, you know, this is not normal, um, the situation we find ourselves in. This being people questioning the outcome of elections. A, a, and The idea that uh, democracy is in peril in the United in the States, United States. Yeah. is, is uh, yeah. for the first time in my lifetime. Yeah, mm -hmm. me too. Well, Chris, maybe I'll just ask one more question and, and, and then... Let you get a word in. You're always so polite. <laughs> well, um, I'm so, enjoying listening to the conversation, but yes. I love seeing Sue. So, so as you think about, we have um, listeners from all over the world on Canusa Street, but principally Canada and the United States. Um, and as you think about the differences between our system and their system, I mentioned the Queen died, and it and it made some of us focus on that i assume people in commonwealth countries are focusing on that but how do you mm. how do you think about the fundamental differences uh between our two systems um well i guess the most significant one is that the us is not officially or structurally a parliamentary system though our political parties are behaving as if we were what um, do you mean? well you know we don't normally have a situation where party trumps uh, individual oh, initiative. True. And yeah. our parties have become so polarized, and this is pre-Trump, for a, a variety of reasons. Um, people are pretty well self-sorted now. Both the parties are much more uh, homogeneous than they've ever been before. And some would say we've become really more tribal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's now like uh, Yankees versus Red Sox, or I guess Canadians versus Maple Leafs. Um, it, you know, one. it's, it's, um, anything that's positive for one party is automatically perceived as negative for the other. Um, yeah. and I, I think that's a real shame. I'm not sure you get that genie back in the bottle, but, um, you know, the biggest difference, I guess, is in a parliamentary system, if things are not working out well, you have a vote of no confidence. Yeah. Um, or the PM can call for elections. And in the U.S., they are stuck with each other for a fixed period of time. So until the 8th of November, we know what we're dealing with in both the um, House, the Senate, and the White House. And I think something people don't realize, in the past 30 years, divided government, where 
either the White House or the House of Representatives or the Senate are of different parties is the norm. Yeah. We've only had a dozen years where we had what's called unified government, um, six years for the Democrats, six years for Republicans. But divided government is sort of the norm. Um, so we are in a unique position now with a nominally Democratic Senate, Democratic House, mm-hmm. and Democratic White House. And this election, from everything I've seen, may well change that circumstance. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I, I want to pick up on that idea of of the role of party discipline. Our Canadian listeners will know that whoever you elect as your MP, if they're in the Liberal Party, there are certain votes they're going to vote with the party. They have to or else the government falls. That's the parliamentary party discipline you have to have. And it's so important when you're watching stories about British politics or someone to know kind of how the party operation goes. But what you were just saying is really interesting that here in the U.S., we're starting to see that same kind of um, that same kind of discipline. And I don't know. It's too early to write the history. But when they, we look back and uh, at Speaker Pelosi, she's been remarkable, as as have the Senate leaders in keeping their blocks together, especially when it's this close. Yeah, uh, it, it has been remarkable and somewhat surprising, especially because unlike in Canada and really in, in any parliamentary democracy, the party can't really do much in terms for deciding who can run for election. I mean, we're based very much on the individual and the primary system. You don't need your party's blessing when you decide to um, run for re-election. Oh, so, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a huge difference in terms of the party not having some of the effective tools of leadership that their counterparts uh, in Canada would have, mm-hmm. for sure. So um, let's, let's take a step back in history for a second, because I've, I've heard this from you before, and I would love for you to share it with our listeners. You know, in the United States, we have a system that was actually defined, designed to be inefficient. Design- so when you think about gridlock and all of that, as opposed to Canada, it was, it's if you have a majority government, it's awfully efficient to get things done. So maybe explain explain what we mean by by that, because it, it has to do, again, with, with I think, our, our very earliest days. Sure. Um, Scotty has heard me say this many times. I've had the privilege of speaking to several groups for the Canada School of Public Service. And I always say that if they remember nothing else from my remarks, two things to remember. One, the U.S. is not parliamentary by design, and emphatically so. Um, Remember, the U.S. rebelled. (laughs) Uh, So it's a simple but I think really important fact. Their concern was tyranny, as they perceived from the king. And they would do anything, anything to prevent that from happening. So they divide government by function. They divide government by uh, geography. And the states came first. And that's one of the explanations for why things are so odd uh, in the U.S. A lot of things that Canadians take for granted, like most criminal law being a national thing. In the U.S., it's more of a state thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly with elections, our Constitution says the times, places, and manners of elections are determined by the states, Um, something that may haunt us uh, in the next few years. Um, But that's one of the important uh, things to remember, just that um, preventing concentrations of power was a good thing. And this is sometimes expressed as that government is best that governs least. 
So, um, which is kind of the opposite of Canada. Hey, Chris, like, <laughs> they, they like a lot of government. Over. Well, because they want peace and order and the famous phrase from the Canadian Constitution, peace, order and good government. That's why they have a country uh, as opposed I would to some... like a little peace, order and good government. Down I, here. Wouldn't I, you I, could use, I could use a little of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, the idea that we're still basing um pretty much everything our government is able to do on a document that's been around since 1789 is a nice talking point. I think it's inspired in many ways, but it's just not suited to the demands uh, of modern society, let alone a superpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let me ask you about something that it, it feels maybe because of social media that that Everything is politics. Even the sports pages are full of people with politics. Politics is everywhere. And reflecting back on on Queen Elizabeth with her passing, you know, she was the head of state. Um, she's very neutral when she spoke publicly. And, and when she was in Canada, very neutral in terms of the politics of the day, but represented something maybe above politics. And in the U.S., the president is both the head of government and the head of state. And I, I've Thinking about that, I started to think how rare it is now that we see the president in that head of state role, which used to be ceremonial, giving out medals to people, maybe doing the Kennedy Center honors, things that kind of transcend politics where we put, you know, kind of the the boxing gloves to one side. But you think about Donald Trump and and now Joe Biden, they're in constant head of government mode. Um, How how does our system survive in that mode? Do we need something that the, the Queen and now King Charles provide to the Canadians? It's, it's a the great British? point. And um, the ceremonial functions of the presidency, we usually think are at their most visible when the president is overseas. Uh, mm-hmm. We used to say yeah. partisanship ends at the water's edge. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but, you know, this week, the president has gotten to do some things that really combine those roles, certainly Speaking at the U.N. General Assembly. I reject the use of violence and war to conquer nations or expand borders through bloodshed, to stand against global politics of fear and coercion, to defend the sovereign rights of smaller nations as equal to those of larger ones, to embrace basic principles like freedom of navigation, respect for international law, and arms control. No matter what else we may disagree on, um, contributing to the global fund, um, various things that have allowed him to be uh, center stage and do the sort of fun parts of the job, mm-hmm. I think, um, coming off of a pretty tough year. He's had a, a, a bit of a um, respite from what's mm-hmm. been a, a pretty much constant drip, drip, drip of less than great news. Um, but, you know, the head of state role, I think, is something that uh, Americans certainly admire. Um, it's interesting, and I know the same is true in Canada, where there are many who are thinking maybe it's time to cut ties with the monarchy and a lot of dangers, I think, in opening up a, a constitution when to do something like that would require... Um, it's one of the few things in the Canadian Constitution that requires unanimity. It You've does. got to have the federal parliament and all the provincial and, and territorial. And all 10, right? Yeah. Whereas other amendments are just seven, I think. Yeah. Um, so the, lots of issues that would certainly come from that. You know, Americans were so hysterical about um, the monarchy that our Constitution, Article 1, uh, Section 9, Clause 8, says no titles of nobility shall be granted. 
Um, That's right. We're we're just you know this is something it's Mr. That, President. Absolutely, yeah. it's Mr. President mm-hmm. and, and anything someday that's, Madam President maybe, but who the heck knows? One hopes. We only have Madam Vice President, so we've we've broken that one. Yeah, so true. That's all right. things that's in time. Right. Well, um, we're going to take a little break now, but Sue, when we come back, I would love to ask you. What has surprised your international visitors the most? You've briefed for State Department, all kinds of people from around the world, not just Canadians. And um, I would love your perspective on the feedback you get when you brief them on our system and its foibles and its idiosyncrasies. What What's their biggest surprise? What kind of reactions do you get? So let's talk about that, if you don't mind, when we come back. Great. Are you red, white, and blue or just red and white? Beaver or Bald Eagle, Ryan Reynolds or JLo, Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-U.S. relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. All right, welcome back, everyone. Um, where we we're talking with Susan Legan, who has been uh, teaching at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown, and she's talking to us about parliamentary politics, congressional politics, how government systems work. And here on Canusa Street, we talk Canada, we talk the United States, that's the CAN and the USA pulled <laughs> together. Um, and so we want to look at this from both sides of the street. Scotty, you you, uh, you you teased us with a question right before the break. Yeah, I'm curious. So you, you brief a lot of people from around the world all the time that come through Washington and explain uh, our system to them. What's the biggest um, surprise people have, or what's the most interesting feedback you get when you explain the states came first and you explain Congress is in charge of the money and all those? What what kind of reactions do you get? Um, I think often disbelief uh, that the states matter as much as they do, mm-hmm. that a lot of powers are reserved to the states because the states came first. And before we had a constitution, we had states with very different ideas about government. Well, you mentioned earlier um, some of the state powers. Maybe you could unpack that. Sure. Because you said criminal. You said criminal laws from the states, and I think about reproductive rights, and that's a hot debate right now. And in some states, you're going to be able to um, avail yourself of that basic health care, and in some states, you are not if you're a, a woman. So, right. um, Maybe talk a little bit more about the states. Sure. Powers. And this is one that. Um, it's really only been since the 24th of June of this year that that's been the case. The Supreme Court uh, has decided that reproductive rights are not something that should be guaranteed under the Constitution as they interpret it, thereby leaving it up to the states. And um, this is something that was as surprising, perhaps, as anything. Um, when we talk about threats to democracy, I think a very important one is the sort of disconnect between public policy and public opinion. Um, in large part, I think that's been due to uh, some of the recent Supreme Court rulings on this and as well as on some other things. Um, but yeah, the, a lot of things that we would consider national in other countries, they just don't understand why don't we just change it. And the reason is to change anything in the U.S. Constitution, it requires 
uh, three-fourths of the states to ratify that change, which translates into 38 of the 50 states. When's the last time we tried and succeeded? Uh, We tried not too terribly long ago and succeeded um, with something that was actually proposed back all the way back at the beginning by James Madison. But the last amendment, the 27th Amendment, says that Congress can't um, raise their pay without standing for election in between. And it's sort of a non-starter because Congress routinely declines a pay raise for various political reasons. Um, You know, money is not the reason most of them are are there. But um, when you say what is most surprising, that's certainly one, that the national government doesn't have the power to intervene. Um, And it becomes particularly interesting when you see situations that are crises. I mean, many would argue COVID was a perfect example of the national government's um, inability, not unwillingness, uh, to intervene more effectively. Um, We had states, remember, some of whom were deciding that they would impose travel bans. Um, I know something of a sore subject with the U.S. and and Canada border. Oh, honey, don't get me started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know... this, the state equivalent of that was certainly something very significant. Um, I think the other thing that really surprises people is um, how much power the legislative branch has. Um, as opposed to the White House. As opposed yeah, to the White let's House. Let's talk about that because well, that's so true. You know, people can focus on the president, singular office president publishes a schedule every day. Congress is this, you know, much more amorphous group of 535 legislators, 100 in the Senate, 435 in the House. Um, But they really do have a lot more power. And this is something I think other governments don't understand. If you're coming from a parliamentary system, you know, they, they, the reason the prime minister is the prime minister is because of the legislative branch. Right. And the, and the budget is the budget. And the budget I mean, it's is not the, the first volley in, a, right. in a long debate. The speech from the throne is the government policy. You can take it to the bank. That's what they're doing. Right. As opposed to here, the State of the Union is a televised speech. It is not policy direction. It might be aspirational. It, anytime you hear a campaign where you hear the president saying, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this, really means... And I'll ask Congress to do this, and I'm hoping Congress will do that, and I hope Congress does this. And the budget is a classic example. I mean, we're coming up once again um, on a possibility of the government running out of money, and uh, Congress really does have control over everything appropriated in the U.S. I've had people sort of pull me aside sometimes when I'm speaking to international groups, and they'll say, isn't there a sort of a backup fund or a contingency arrangement? No, there really isn't. Yeah. Uh, no funds shall be drawn upon the Treasury except by appropriations made in law. It's right there in the Constitution. And that's something Congress takes seriously. Something else that it has been interesting uh, thinking about in the last year or so um, a lot of critics in the U.S. talk about presidents and executive orders, you know, using that as a shortcut to legislation and other things. And Canada, uh, during the Canadian truckers we've talked about there during their protest, um, y- you saw the prime minister doing something that that some commentators thought of as similar, which is an order in council. But an order in council is not the prime minister's doing an executive order. It actually is him and his cabinet acting together. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of uh, difference, uh, and in particular, how executive orders work? And, and Sure, sure. 
Um, executive orders are in a sort of unique circumstance. You know, we generally have a hierarchy in terms of authority uh, in a court, and the Constitution trumps everything, of course. And then there's statute and treaties, and then there's other. And one of those other things is an executive order which has the force of law, but importantly, uh, it exists only for as long as that president is in office. So it's become routine now on Inauguration Day for the new president to make a great show of doing away with some of the executive orders his predecessor had. Um, and the courts have said that the executive orders can kind of fill in the gaps, but they can't contravene existing legislation. So this is, for example, Scotty mentions earlier reproductive rights. This is another area where Congress can act to enshrine certain rights, um, thereby providing a statute. Of course, given the current political dynamic, that's unlikely. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's what should happen. There, there should be legislation. When there isn't, the president can sort of fill in the, the gaps or fill in the blanks. Um, ideally, you want to get something enshrined in statute, if mm -hmm. you possibly can. When you're dealing with a political dynamic like we are now, whereas as of this morning uh, in the House, we have 220 Democrats, 211 Republicans, and we have four vacancies currently. Mm -hmm. In the Senate, we are 50-50. Um, the House has not been that close since the 1800s. Oh, is that right? Yep. Wow. Um, the Senate, you can't get any closer than that. So, I mean, you're yeah. dealing with incredibly narrow margins and the knowledge that majority status is fleeting. Um, yes. So, again, the, the chances of getting cooperation. You know, we, we can't cooperate on whether or not it's okay for... Uh, <laughs> a former president to um, spread the big lie to have candidates running for office in this election saying they may or may not accept defeat in the next, you know, there's precious little agreement we can get. I'd like to ask both of you, actually, if I could, you're, you, you're making me think about what's really durable. And um, so you mentioned Congress is in charge of the money. Uh, which people don't necessarily realize. The president can say, I want this, but Congress has to has the purse strings designed that way, check and balance, so that no one person is concentrated with a lot of power. So that's by design. When you think about, for example, President Biden and this Congress passed a couple of very large pieces of legislation. The Inflation Reduction Act is really a climate change bill mm -hmm. when you think about mm -hmm. it. It's a lot of money. It's it's historic amounts of money. Is it? Can people take that money to, to the bank? Can you like? Is that money going to be durable? Can industry say I'm going to invest in carbon transition technology and things like that? Um, or, or do you have to say, well, you know, in the next election? The, the it could be a different president, a different Congress, and it could all be gone. Like, how do you, so what's the durability? I'll ask both of you for your thoughts on that. Um, I was just asked this question myself and, and I'd like some really smart people to answer. Susan, you have to go first. No, no. Uh, on this one, <laughs> this is the question I get all the time um, in my other life. Um, I teach U.S. 
executive branch personnel about how Congress operates. There we go. And the whole reason for our little institute's existence is to explain that, you know, I know for contracting officers, it would be really helpful to know what you're dealing with, to have some long-range projections. And it's just not the way the system is designed. I mean, in the U.S., you know, long range is two years until the next Congress is sworn in. So there are some things that are um, more durable than others. But the one you mentioned, uh, we're in sort of a new territory here, yeah. too. Um, it's, it's same with the, the infrastructure bill, which is the other, oh, that's the other huge right. piece of legislation. With zero Republican votes. Right. Mm -hmm. um, huge piece of legislation. And again, zero Republican votes, but a lot of Republicans will certainly be taking credit when they go back to run for re-election for the things that are provided. Right, you know, right. So, um, you know, it, it would be great if you could count on it. And again, there are certain uh, federal regulations for certain programs, but you get into the weeds there. It's very complicated as to which things have uh, industrial base issues, that sort of thing that have to be um, planning on a, a typically a five or six year cycle. Congressional appropriations are on a one year cycle. Yeah, um, yeah. it's amazing. So, Chris, what do you think about that? Well, I, it actually makes me think a little bit about what you, you said at the beginning, this whole notion of um, the ghost in the machine, the sort of sense of institutions and traditions. And you know, Edmund Burke talked about the unwritten constitution. Britain famously did not have one. Mm -hmm. um, the U.S. has one and we litigate everything. Mm -hmm. And Canada sits in between. They have a federation, which Britain didn't have at the start. Um, they have now a written constitution um, that divides a power. So they're sort of stuck a little bit between us. And I, I wonder, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that that is one of the reasons that the Supreme Court's become such a, an issue for us. Because Supreme Court, I remember when, when I was young, it was just sort of this, it was like all other judges, very respected. You just sort of deferred and didn't really understand the details. Of, I was young too. Uh, but, um, but now, confirmations, everything, it, it almost seems like another legislature, yet another thing you go to and people think of the justices in terms of, I guess, conservative or liberal rather than Republican or Democrat, but often they mean Republican and Democrat based on who appointed them. How how, how does the Supreme Court kick in uh, into all of this? Um, much more prominently than I ever would have imagined. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think you mentioned public respect for the institution, which has plummeted um, recently. Uh, I spent a lot of time telling my constitutional law students um, pretty much what Chief Justice Roberts said when he began, which is, you know, there aren't Democratic and Republican justices. Um, well, now there are. And it's pretty clear um, that that's the case. It used to be, I think Stanford Law School keeps track of how often justices vote uh, according to the ideological lines of the president who appointed them. And it used to be, really, there was not much of a discernible pattern. Most decisions from the Supreme Court uh, were unanimous. Um, now, still the case that there are a lot of unanimous decisions. They're not the big, exciting constitutional issues. Um, but yeah, now it's very clear that the judiciary, which was intended to be separated from politics, mm -hmm. has become pretty well entrenched. And um, let me just give you the, the short um, picture here. Seven of the last eight presidents we've had have been Democrats. 
and I'm sorry, um, of the Democrats who have been appointing people to the courts. Um, you know, some get really lucky. Trump got three appointments to the Supreme Court out of nine. That's considered one of his biggest legacies. Um, legacies. legacies yeah. And for every president, that's really their legacy. And by definition, there's a bit of a time lag because right. they're appointed for life terms. Something else that was really puzzling to a lot of international visitors. I know in Canada, there's a, a maximum age limit. Mm-hmm. Um, not so in the U.S. or for elected office. Um, many just look, just look at the United States Senate if you want to know. About <laughs> and, and many will say, oh, it's so undemocratic that other countries place age limits. As long as the people want them, why can't they return to office? And I think yeah. we've got a whole lot of good reasons. But, um, you know, with the bench, uh, we are seeing justices at the Supreme Court younger and younger. Um, and they can have three, four decades of influence far beyond uh, the president who appointed them. And I think oh, that's yeah. what we're seeing now. It, again, something we never would have seen. And when you mentioned the the written constitution and Canada being sort of in the middle, many of the issues that our court would be looking at would be things that would be in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as opposed to... Right. And that was something that uh, that Pierre Trudeau brought in when he repatriated the constitutional process of taking British legislation and making it a constitution. And I remember one of the big impacts of that was the Supreme Court of Canada declaring something unconstitutional, which prior we followed the Westminster model. Parliament is supreme. The court cannot counter man them. Oh, but now that started happening. And what, what, and what was it, Chris? Do you remember? If I remember right, maybe it's the only one I, I, I have on the tip of my tongue. It's the Singh ruling in 1986 that decided that, uh, which had to do with whether you had the right to uh, public benefits while you were appealing your immigration case. Um, oh, interesting. Oh, wow. So, interesting. Imagine how hot that is. Wow. Yeah. Look, you know, look, this is so interesting. And I mean, I, I would love to talk to you all day. We're coming to the end of our time, but I wonder if we could have you back because I have lots, lots more I'd love to talk about, about the fundamentals of democracy. What, what do you think, Chris? I think we definitely need a second seminar. We'll, we'll call it AP Canusa Street. Well, Terrific. <laughs> sounds good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's always lovely to see. It's great to see you in person, actually. It is. Yeah, it's really nice to do this in person. Humans. It's great. <laughs> Well, Chris, I always love talking to Sue Legon. I've had the chance to interact with her a lot over the years, and I usually take notes when she talks. She's just that uh, detailed about her knowledge of our constitutional system. And it's really interesting when you compare it to the Canadian system, which is quite different. So uh, I really enjoyed that chat. I did too. And I think sometimes the there's, uh, among Canadian friends of mine, sort of a disbelief at how the system works. And what, what was great about Susan's uh, explanation was that it really showed the wiring underneath the facade, you know, like lift mm-hmm. up the hood, I guess, another analogy, lift up the hood of the car and see how the engine kind of all fits together because because that machinery is under stress, as she says. But, but it also helps to explain some of the different ways that political issues that we share move through our system versus the Canadian system, the, 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 the strong ability of a parliamentary majority to act, the fact that our system 
isn't really meant to act. It's meant to make change difficult. And those kind of orientations, you kind of learn them in school, but then as she described it, you can kind of see how it affects not only policy, but how we work together. That's exactly right. And I can only assume that Hamilton, being such a successful show on Broadway, has helped her job because <laughs> she's educating people about how our country was founded and what the first tenants were and all of that. And now she's got a little bit of pop culture to help her out. Yep. I Well, and I have to give credit to the old schoolhouse rock people. I That's how I learned to memorize the preamble to the Constitution oh, because of the right. catchy song. And, you know, so the some music it does help you uh, make your way through. It, re- it really does. Well, what, a, what? how wonderful to always see you, and it's great to have Sue here, and, and we'll see you next time on Canusa Street. And we'll see you next time, and I promise not to sing. <laughs> Excellent. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.